welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. My name is Michael Walker, and I'm here with my good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? Insert something clever here. Well, on today's show, we're going to talk about games we played this week, then news... Oh, slow down, slow down. If we're going to insert something clever, couldn't we just parlay that into the entire episode? We could be done, Walker. That's true. It'd be much simpler. Just insert interesting news now. Yeah, it would be it would be more collaborative enterprise, right? Because this is all we're in an era of social media and audience interaction. So I think it's really tyrannical of us to tell our listeners what our podcast is going to be. When with the power of their imaginations, all our listeners could just imagine the best podcast ever. It's true. I think it's doing them an injustice, actually, yeah. and insulting to them that we don't just let them make it up in their heads. Good point. Then again. Then again. I did you know, do all this writing, and I don't like wasting my time. We do have all these notes, yeah. It's true. So we're going to talk about games we played this week, news, and why it doesn't matter, our feature game this week, which is Kemet. And the topic for this week is going to be turn order. So Mark, I'll give you the first turn, and tell me what you played this week. Played Raw. Raw is one of my top ten favorite games. It is, by my estimation, the very greatest of auction games by the very greatest of auction game designers, Ryan and Knizia. A lot of people prefer modern art, but for a variety of reasons, modern art never really clicked with me. Raw is super clever in that it involves a lot of push-your-luck elements. It a lot of, involves a lot of reading the table. It involves a lot of weird trade-offs whereby sometimes a lot is excellent, and then with the addition of a single new tile, because you pushed your luck a little bit too much, suddenly it's trash. And I've been playing Raw ever since it came out. I'm a huge fan of the game. I will play it in any opportunity. Many people refuse to play it and account any other than three, which I can understand. It is definitely different with all player accounts. It's very different with three than it is with four than it is with five. And five is definitely a bit of a chaotic experience, but I will play it at any player account. I've even played two player and it works perfectly fine there. It is one of my perennial favorites and I adore every opportunity to get it to the table. In today's game market of the cult of the new, it's a little bit difficult, especially since auctions aren't really a very popular genre anymore. And to a certain extent, I can understand why that's true. It kind of oversaturated the market for a brief little while, and now nobody really does auctions anymore. Instead, it's drafting, usually, or something of the equivalent. More on drafting later. But I will never give up Loving Raw. I don't think it has, uh, it has stood the test of time very, very well, and I've never had a bad time playing it. And there's a lot of iterations you can see come off it, like the city-building games, like Between Two Cities and or... And or Quadropolis, you can see where they've pulled, you know, their games from Raw. So, there you go. What do you think of Raw, Walker? I didn't really get a sense of your impression. I've only played it twice now, and both times it's been the case where one person seems to get totally wrecked and not have fun while everyone else is having a joyous time. But th- That maybe- was not my recollection of the session. Huh. It, it's strange because a lot of people dismiss Raw as being too luck-based, and that has honestly not been my experience. No, it I is, definitely, definitely. No, no, no sorry, I was, I was, I was just segueing. It's just, okay, gotcha. Because I think the other problem is, is that since experience, it's one of those games where experience is going to win an, a very, very large percentage of the time. Because not just because of the, the the standard auction game business where you know what things are worth, broadly speaking. Sometimes it takes a little bit of experience for that. But on top of that, you have the rhythm of the game, the tempo of the rounds, when rounds end, when you need to push hard, when you need to pull back. And that's the kind of thing where experience really benefits you. So despite the fact that it superficially seems very, very arbitrary and luck-based, you know, the most experienced player at the table is going to win an overwhelming percentage of the time. Uh, so definitely in terms of victory, I see that. But I, didn't, I, don't, I don't recall seeing people get frozen out. Maybe I just have, have Raw's colored glasses on. I guess so. 
So uh, when, you, when you're high up on the on the podium, it's hard to look down on the little guy. Oh, don't worry. I do look down on you. That's good. I, I never notice it. Cough. I finally got to the table. First class. It's the final game of the games I played while I was abroad. So I finally got it in because it was fi- Z-Man finally brought it to North America. It's a great little train game. For what it is type thing, it plays very quickly. And what you do is you're drafting cards from the main table. And the only thing that's confusing to people is the fact that it seems very Euro-y and you don't actually have to pay a cost for the cards that you're drafting. Whereas, you know, okay, well, now how much do I have to pay for this card is usually the question. So, no, you're just quickly drafting these cards, moving your conductors down your cars, moving your train down the track, and trying to get the most points at the end. So, it's a great little game. I didn't realize it's such a bear to tear down for what you get. But other than that, still liking it. First Class by Z-Man. What do you think of it overall? I was I wasn't sure what to expect because here's the thing with train game it conjures up all kinds of expectations you know all the way from the 18xx gamers who think that that's the only version of a train game to the people who play Transamerica and said that's the only version of a train game you know so I was I I should have known better than to expect something this is basically a lighter version of Russian railroads I don't know if you've ever played Russian railroads I have not yet it's very superficially similar in a number of ways and as you say, it's, it's, it is a pure drafting game, which is not what I was expecting. Basically, all you do is you draft 18 cards over the course of the game, and that's it. That's, that's what you do in first class. And the iconography is a little bit initially daunting, but you, you catch on to it really quickly. The thing that I find the biggest impediment, actually, of learning first class has nothing to do with the iconography or, indeed, the fact that cards don't cost anything. It's that the theming is, even for a euro of this light, grotesquely bad. And this is not a huge criticism of the game, but it is actually so bad that it stands in the way of you learning how the game works. Because the way your trains work in first class is bizarre. You start with the caboose, and that's where your conductor is. And eventually, you fill it with a whole bunch of worthless cars. And if you stuff enough worthless cars there, then the front of the train hits Constantinople. And then what you do is you start marching your conductor up from the caboose all the way to the front. And the moment the conductor walks from the back of the train to Constantinople, points! So, you know, it works fine as a game. It's all fine. It's just, intuitively, it's bizarre, and I don't get it. So it took me a a long while to figure out what the hell was going on from that perspective. As far as light train-ish games go, I thought it was fine. As far as drafting games go, I thought it was fine. But, you know, broadly speaking, if I want to play a train game, I'll play something else. And if I want to play a drafting game, I'll play something else. Which is not high criticism. It was, you know, it was perfectly pleasant and straightforward. But uh, not a whole lot of player interaction, pretty bad theming. And it was one of those cases where the rules overhead, although relatively slight, didn't really pay off in what I felt was significant strategic or tactical payoffs. But it was perfectly pleasant, and I'd play it again. I think it would be hilarious if they named the route cards, like put different cities on it, so you could like join up, you know, like Berlin and Tokyo in a nice line. Oh, that'd be lovely. That would be lovely. It's like, yeah, first you go to Berlin, then you go to Tokyo, then you go to Spokane, and then you go to Mexico City, exactly. and you go to L.A. Yeah, yeah, that'd it be great. It would be great. Or if you were delivering cows to alien overlords. It's also true, but we can't all be Great Western Trail. It's true. What else did you play this week? Played another game of Dogs of War, just a quick shout out, we've talked about it a lot, but I am not getting tired of it in the slightest, and I think it's uh, winning over converts locally as well. A number of people actually, a number of viewers have, have written in talking about having acquired Dogs of War on the on the basis of our recommendations, which I think is great, uh, more power to them, and they're enjoying it as well, or at least they're lying to us, which, you know, might make sense, I would lie to me, or would I? Okay, we no, no paradoxes, we don't like paradoxes. Exactly. Hard enough closing that last vortex, don't do it again. Yeah, yeah, it's true. 
And once again, when we play Dogs of War, we only play with the designer's recommended variants, which really are standing the test of time. You know, they, they were an immediate hit based on the way they changed how Crushing Victories worked, but I think they've really worked out well. It's a shame he hasn't shown up again on the boards. It was one of those strange circumstances. I've been back to the thread a couple of times just to see if he's if he's chimed in, but no. It was just, hey, here are some ideas off the top of my head. I haven't tried any of them yet. Go to town. And everyone who shows up in that thread on Board Game says, these are great. These are wonderful. And he hasn't been back Give since. Give us more. So, Give us more, Paolo Mori. Give us more. All right, I got to the table downforce finally. It was sort of a big hit over the winter, and it's a great little quick learning game where you're just drafting cards. It's like, uh, I meant to look it up. There's an old wooden kids game where you're playing down. You have a hand of six numbers, and everyone secretly plays a card in Gallipoli or something. It's a nice little wooden... Gallipoli? Something like that. Gallipoli is not a lighthearted know, kids game. I know, I know, I know. It... Everyone secretly puts down a, a numbered card... And you flip it over and you move your little horse along. But you can, everyone can only take up one space. So if you play a card that lands you on some space and moves you back, much like Downforce, everyone's playing cards to try to get their race cars around the track and blocking parts of the track and betting on cars. It's a neat little game for what it is. I'd play it again. Did you play it with the betting version? Yes. Because I, I hear tell that's the best way to do it. I didn't realize there was another way. Apparently it's an optional rule. Well, I don't know why it would be. Oh, fair enough. You haven't played Downforce yet? You should give it a try. Like I said, much like First Class, for what it is, it's it's a good way to spend 20 minutes. It does seem to be one of those rare race games that doesn't last an hour and a half. This is also true. Because <laughs> we, 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 we commented briefly before, race games just seem far too long as a general rule. So this one just seems cheap and cheerful, which is nice. Uh, finally, for me, I've got a strange note. Uh, mostly, this this has been actually a very good week of gaming for returning back to lots of games that we've talked about on the show before. Had a great game of Feast for Odin. Had a great game of Lords of Hellas. Had a great game of lots of other of our feature games. So, you know, we, we've said all we have to say about that. Uh, but one feature game that I would like to make one mention of, and this is just, this is less talking about a game that I played and more about how I love being surprised. You know, you think you know something and it turns out you really don't understand what the hell's going on. We played a game of Deception Murder in Hong Kong with some new players, and everyone took to the game right away because, again, one of the great virtues of the game is very simple. But there's a Kickstarter component that, that's now actually available in retail markets to upgrade the components to deluxe, deluxe components. You don't have cardboard badges anymore. You have little metal badges that you get to throw in when making your accusation. And you don't have wooden bullets anymore. You have little plastic microscopes. Now, first of all, I think that's a bit of a lateral move in terms of neat components but whatever but we'd always been putting the microscopes on top of the, the the tile and they're a little too big and so we had a little bit of difficulty reading them so we immediately ditched them and went back to the bullets so we were playing with a new player and she was the forensic scientist and she just clipped the microscopes to the side of the tile there's this little space in the microscope where you can just clip it to the side rather than putting it on top and everyone else at the table we're talking about eight nine other people who'd played deception a couple times before looked over and were just gobsmacked they just yeah. could not believe what they'd seen instantly caveman it's ooh fire look what she did exactly <laughs> exactly it was you know the, the 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 bringing a pencil to space rather than developing a quarter million dollar pen kind of kind of moment and it was just a wonderful moment of surprise, this game that I played 50 times before, seeing something that I'd never seen before. It was, it was wonderful. It was joyous. It was one of those things that as a jaded gamer, you don't get to see very much anymore. And I was very, very pleased to see it. Uh, so parenthetically, if you're... It, I have to hope. I have to hope that there are other people in the world as stupid as I was and didn't know how the microscopes worked. So if you have the plastic microscopes for reception, they clip onto the sides of the tile. Or maybe not. Maybe there's some third configuration that they were really meant to do that is 
because yet maybe that you know when combined in the right way you you get the prime materia and it will turn lead into gold i don't know it's gonna be combined with the third expansion where you do the bullet and the microscope and whatever comes in the third one it creates the master device it's gonna be great oh if they all synced together it'd be like a detective voltron yes that would be wonderful in the last game I'm going to talk about, we already talked about Skull. I just want to say how Skull's great. Especially in the setting, had a big barbecue yesterday, had a whole bunch of people over, gamers and non-gamers, and Skull is just a game to play. Yeah, we have nothing new to say this week, do we? Oh, well. Everything old is new again. Everything old is new. Well, Downforce is new. Except that it's a 20-year-old game. True. <laughs> so let's move on to the news. Don't say that too loud. Mr. Davio might hear you. <laughs> on, to, on to the news. No, I'm going to say we're moving on to the news. <laughs> Out of the news and why it doesn't matter. So in the news today, this is probably going to be on your list, so I'm going to take it. It's Red Alert by Richard Borg. It's another Command & Colors game. Do tell. It's on Kickstarter. Do tell. And it's a giant fleet space battle game called Red Alert. And it looks very interesting. And it's done by the same people that did the Great War, PSC Games. I haven't had a chance to play The Great War yet, but it's yet another Command and Color, more in depth than Memoir 44, I'm assuming, with you know bigger models, bigger tanks, bigger units. So this one's called Red Alert. As we're recording this, there's 14 days left. And uh, check it out. It looks pretty interesting. PSC is the same company for what it's worth that put out Quartermaster General 1914 and Quartermaster General Victory or Death. And the, appropriately enough, the Plastic Soldiers therein, because PSC stands for Plastic Soldier Company. I haven't played The Great War either. Honestly, when it comes to Command and Colors, it's very much a question of pick whichever theater or theaters interest you. Well, for both of us, that's definitely Battle or Second Edition. For me, it's also Commands, Colors, Napoleonics, and so those two more or less uh, cover it. I'm not super interested in the First World War, um, except insofar as represented in, in, in grain strategic kinds of things. But, you know, it gets some more tactical, granular stuff. Like the Commands and Colors series, I, I start to, you know, I'm not particularly keen on having my guys drown in mud. But on a grand scale, I can ignore the fact that they're drowning in mud. So, But I had not heard of Red Alert. I'm going to have to take a look at it. There you go. I do like me some uh, Space Warfare, and I do like me some Commands and Colors. Yeah, so. that's what I'm saying. It's the best of all worlds. Well, you don't get that historical flavor. That's a bit of a loss. My heart will always belong to the Napoleonic Wars. What do you have on your list? So there are two games that are very close to our heart here at So Very Wrong About Games that you haven't played yet. One of them being Seal Team Flicks. There's a designer diary on BoardGameGeek. It was published just the morning of our recording this, which is to say the 6th of June. So if you want to go check the, the news feed on BoardGameGeek, you can find the designer diary. A particular note, uh, there was a lot of stuff that I'd already known because I'd, I'd been reading up on the design but uh, they talk a little bit about why there are women seals, which do not exist in the real world, which was great. It was it was very much uh, a sort of pragmatic, matter-of-fact statement of inclusion. Basically, you know, I playtested this with my daughters, and I want them to be represented in the game, which is just the sort of, you know, apolitical, basic accessibility stuff that, that we here on So Very Wrong About Games can really uh, agree on. It, it doesn't cause uh, Walker to start rolling his eyes when I start getting a little more, uh, little more ideological. It also explains why uh, there's a funny story about why one of the uh, seals on the cover of Seal Team Flicks is wearing lip gloss. And it was not to... I was initially afraid that it was sort of the standard, well, you know, lady soldier, got to put some makeup on her. No, it's because it is... The soldier there is Hannah, who's modeled after the daughter of one of the co-designers, and apparently she's obsessed with lip gloss. So... That was the reason why. It's just a shout-out. Yeah, it's just a shout-out. And it really, it, it gives a little bit more context as, as to some of the game design decisions and the non-game design decisions. And I really like when 
designers are a little bit more forthright about both ends of those because it, it, it isn't always just all, all about the mechanics. So uh, go check out that designer diary on Seal Team Flicks if you're at all interested in the game. And if you're not interested in the game, why are you listening to this podcast? Exactly, because it's going to be Seal Team Flicks pod. United. I already got the, it's going to be a great, uh, the letters S, uh, what is it? SDF? STFU. Uh, seal, <laughs> seal team flicks united is going to be the new podcast name so it's it's great it's gonna be fantastic nice next on my news is cthulhu side by simon games it's called death just died kill it again die 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 death it's gonna be fantastic no that's not what it's called game. i'm sure it is i no. have it's written that's how it's written right here. no 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 that's not what it's called it's not cthulhu side no it's not cthulhu side i think you're lying the actual title of the game walker is called cthulhu death may die death may Gotcha. Well, it's a new genre, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, I really look forward to the first instantiation of Cthulhu in a board game form. It's really a shame that no one's done that before. It's going to be very interesting, I'm sure. And then I'm sure there won't be five other rehashes of it from Simon. Well, they haven't rehashed many things. It's pretty much just... In point of fact, we've talked about this before. They really seem to have two gears. There's the pump the franchise forever uh, model, which they have for Arcadia Quest and Zombicide. And then there's the release something and then never talk about it ever again, which unfortunately includes such excellent designs as, for example, Dogs of War and some of the other uh, Eric Lang stuff. So, And this is being designed by Eric Lang and Rob Daviau, so who knows what they're going to be doing with, with, with that there. It's quite the team up. It is. I mean, I think both of them are somewhat overrated, sometimes uneven designers, but they definitely both have potential. Another bit of news is the reprint for Mythic Battles Pantheon is currently on Kickstarter. Again, as of recording this, uh, there are only a few days left in the campaign. It's, it's running until the 15th of June. And I mention it because we've, we've said some good things about the game, and I think a Mythic Battles Pantheon deserves a, a fair bit of praise. It gets a lot of things right, but quite frankly, I'm hard-pressed to think of the last time you got such value out of a core pledge because all the extras and stretch goals have been unlocked from the start from the first campaign, and you can get the base set and the... All of the stretch goals for 120 bucks, which is $20 more for, than the first campaign. But honestly, the amount of stuff you get in there is ridiculous. So if you're at all curious, if you've been keen to get a copy, uh, I would say jump on it. Because it's honestly one of the better miniature skirmish games in a box. And the value is just undeniable. Under the further topic of all that is old is new again, there is going to be a resurrection of the Warhammer Quest adventure card game. Which was designed by Brady and Adam Sadler. And they've done some very interesting stuff in the past. I very much enjoyed their design of Death Angel, uh, which was uh, a, a fair number of years ago now, their cooperative Space Hulk card game from Fantasy Flight back when they had the Warhammer license. So Heroes of Terranoth is going to be the same fundamental engine ported off into that most exciting of settings, Terranoth, because everyone loves that, that incredibly novel story about elves that live in trees and shoot bows at orcs. So yeah, I was looking at this new segment, and that's why I didn't put it on my list. Was because if I started on on the exciting world of Tirnoth, I think I would get too worked up and excited about it. Yeah. To uh... <laughs> Walker, Walker, we, we have to record. Oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. It is a good game system, though, and it is a bit of a shame that they ha they clearly had some expansion work in the till because they released two expansions in a very very big rush to have it print on demand five seconds before they lost the license. So I'm glad that at least the, the Sadler brothers are able to 
put out more work on the system. I, I thought that the core, that the system was, was potentially interesting, and I thought with a little bit more polish, a little bit more player interaction, a little bit more nuance of the choices, that it could be a real winner. I found the uh, the Warhammer Quest version a little bit too plotting, the choices a little bit too straightforward every turn. It didn't really sing for me, but I really do like a lot of their design work. So I'm, I'm just glad that they're going to get another crack at it. Yeah, and now they have, they're open for more expansions now, right? So. Yeah, and there's no chance that they're losing the license, unless, of course, some deep-pocketed individual is so enamored with the Terranoth world that they're just going to drive up enough money to Fantasy Flight to make them want to sell it because, you know, that's a hot, hot product. They're probably going to option it for, like, five epic films because of all the great stories about all the, the wonderful, exciting things that happen in... Yeah, and we've never heard... Mark, Mark. Uh, <clears throat> sorry, sorry. I know, it's it's just a dream, a, a broken dream that it could come true. Now on to our feature game this week, which is Kemet, which is a fantastic, oldie but goodie game. Mark, throw it in the timeline. It's not that old. <laughs> it was released in 2012. And to a large extent, people identify Kemet as being in a sort of lineage with Cyclades and Inish after it, which I think is nonsense. The only things they have in common is a box size and publisher. Hey, and, the, and the art design on the back of the box when you have it on your shelf, it looks the same as the other ones, Mark. So it must be the same. Okay. Okay. The, the thing about Kemet, which I think is really striking, and we've talked about it primarily in terms of its status as a dudes on a map game, but one of the things that I think I'd like to stress today when we're talking about it a little bit more in depth is the manners in which it is not a dudes on a map game, because many people have criticized us for only talking about those kinds of games, and to a certain extent, ever since moving here and being corrupted by Walker and his warlike preferences and his disdain for elegance and his enthusiasm for all things messy and plastic... Uh, that has been more of what we've been doing lately, but it is the case that Kemet does stand in opposition to a lot of other kinds of dudes on a map experiences. And so that, that that's kind of what I'd like to stress. Now, the designers, Jacques Barriot and Guillaume Montillage, have done a couple of things here and there. Mostly the other thing that, they've known, uh, that they're known for other than Kemet are some Kemet expansions and an auction game called Nefertiti. Nefertiti came out four years prior to Kemet. It's, its salient distinction is being one of the most bizarre auction games I've ever played. It's really, really weird. You know, talking about how auction games kind of got uh, overloaded since then, some of the more recent auction games have just been differentiating themselves by their incredible strangeness, and Nefertiti is just bizarre. Sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way. I thought that the fundamental auction mechanics were very interesting. Uh, but these are two fellows who are very much in the standard sort of French design mold, and one of the things that you get out of the French design mold is these sort of hybrid, conflicty games that are fundamentally Euro uh, rather than a more traditional risk-type derivative. So why don't you talk a little bit about what we do as players in Kemet, Walker? In Kemet, you're slowly building up, making sure you look weak the whole time. <laughs> so no one picks on you. Much like Twilight Imperium 4th Edition, you okay. don't want to look like you're about to win. Making sure you're acquiring the coolest looking monsters. Then you pick a turn for your big push and hope no one will stop you and hit your victory point total and win the game. <laughs> That's pretty much the cynical exploit. Like, I know you like the game, which is... All the things you said are... Well, okay. Most of the things you said are accurate, but none of those are flattering. I suppose not. But I don't I don't think we need... Like, I was going to make this point. I didn't want to interrupt you before, but I don't think we need to make a point with Kemet. Because almost with every... Not almost every... Quite a few games that we talk about, we almost always reference something back to Kemet and how Kemet does it better. True. So, 
But mostly, okay, mo so let's talk about it. Let's get a little bit meta about how we discuss things for a moment. So we talked, we, we mentioned Kemet a number of times with respect to how it avoids some of the problems in multiplayer conflict games. And that, again, is because I think it's because it, in, in some ways it's not really a dudes on a map game. In the ways that it is a dudes in a map game, it gets a lot of things right. We talked about the fluid map and how that was definitely a necessity. How if you're willing to pay for it and if you're you're willing to be clever about it, you can get where you need to go and you're not going to get railroaded or blocked in. There are multiple paths to victory. You don't just get points through fighting, although you do get a fair amount of points through fighting. And how the combat is, at its core, fundamentally transactional much of the time. It's not always about holding dirt, although that's often important, but it's often just about getting what you want out of the individual fight rather than caring about the aftermath. So that, those are things that we've talked about ad nauseum. We're not going to dwell on them too much here. And Walker's looking down in his notes and erasing half of what he's written because done he really did. Done and done and on to the topic of the day. <laughs> so what I, what I want to talk about is how Kemet is really a game about shopping. And that's one of the ways in which I really enjoy it. Because... There was a friend of mine I had back in Cambridge who talked about how he loved toys. You know, one of the things, in the sense of, of games, he uh, he actually served as one of the lead developers in Spirit Island, which is very good because Spirit Island is just full of toys. Every power is a new toy. And Kemet, to me, although it has fewer toys than Spirit Island, still has plenty. Because there are 16 power tiles for color, and with the expansion, we're talking about four different colors. Now, they're not all different. There are some duplicates in, in, in the level. But already, we're talking about a universe of 64 available power tiles. And they're, they're all fun. Like, some of, some of them are more fun than others. Some of them are just, uh, uh, you know, sort of background buffs. But it's all great to be able to buy all these things. And you're constantly acquiring new stuff in Kemet. You never feel overloaded. By the amount of toys that you have, generally speaking, I don't. I don't feel that it's the it's the case that it's one of those games where, very much like Mythic Battles Pantheon is. To a certain extent, to play well in Mythic Battles Pantheon, step one is internalize what all your guys can do, and that's hard. Kemet is not quite like that, but you're still getting this constant influx of nifty things you can do with your with your power tiles. I agree with all those points, and the, that's a double-edged sword. Though first, I'll talk about the good points of these power tiles: is the fact that every game. It's going to be different. You can take all sorts of different paths to victory, and I'm going to, the negative points are it's a very it really front ends the game because there are so many tiles that you have to learn. But to get these tiles, they come in four different levels, and whatever your pyramid level is is the level of power you're allowed to take. So you usually start off pretty low, and if you just concentrate on the low level powers, figure out what they do, and then as you increase your pyramid size, then you know start learning what these other things do. Then it's a uh, the best way to get acquainted with all these different powers. I agree with you that there's a lot of front-loaded information, and in point of fact, it, just explaining Kemet to new players can sometimes be daunting, because some people want an explanation about what every toy does at the outset, and that's a legitimate preference. And for them, I would prefer someone else explain Kemet to them, because I don't want to go through upwards of... It's not 64 different effects, but it's well over 40 different power tiles. This one does this one, this one does this. Especially since, by the end of that explanation, they're not going to remember half that stuff anyway. On the other hand, it can often seem daunting to just throw someone a player aid that lists all these things, more on player aids in a moment, and just say, make your own decisions. Now, fortunately, in Kemet, the power tiles are grouped into pretty thematically coherent groupings. White is for infrastructure, red is for offense, blue is for defense. Then there's black, which is kind of a catch-as-catch-can, catch-all kind of thing, which it's, is... It's a little dark, like, sacrificing, slavery, you know, it's a little no, bit No, slavery's of... white. 
how could you forget that slavery is a white I thought power there was, title? I thought there was some in, in black as well. That's all. Well, there's a thing called dark sac- dark ritual, right? But all that it does, it gives you some extra prayer points. And there are lots of white tiles that are just named nicer. Uh, you know, there's lots of terrible things you can get in the other colors. But True. parenthetically, just returning to the notion of power tiles, these are called power tiles. And there are white power tiles, which is an unfortunate translation. And slavery happens to be one of the white power tiles. So that's, you know, usually good for a groan at the start of the game. Very much like playing a race war in Hyperborea. Usually when I teach Kemet, I make sure that they know that everyone's homeland is the same number of spaces away from everyone else's. Just so get that out of the way and stress that enough. Because in most of these games, you usually, you know, you have your home where you're sitting and you, you know, work out from there. And you attack the player to your left and right, just like almost every other game. But in this game, everyone's the same number of spaces away. Then I explain to them that it's best to concentrate on certain, if it's their first game, concentrate on certain one power or two powers and figure out what they do and understanding how the fighting works because that's the one of the main parts of the game is not only do you get victory points from the fights but in order to take the areas that give you the other way to get victory points you usually have to fight for them so understanding how the cards cycle and how you can figure out how the battle is going to play out is how i teach the second part of the game let's talk a little bit about that because i actually have increasing appreciation for commit's battle system I never disliked it, but I didn't quite appreciate the level of nuance that it has when I, during my first playings. Every time you engage in a fight in Kemet, you're going to have a base strength, and this is almost exclusively due to how many people you have in the fight, how many troops you've got involved. Uh, sorry, how many units you have in a troop. That's another element of, of obnoxious terminology in Kemet. The, the a grouping of plastic things is, is a single troop consisting of multiple units. Rather than using some term like army or anything else, they use troop, which is a perfectly legitimate English use of the word. It's just normally we use troop in the plural sense, but anyhow. But on top of that, both the attacker and the defender must play a battle card. And everyone has access to the same eight battle cards at the start of the game, if you have the expansion. And there are three possible things that a battle card will do. One will help you win the fight. One will inflict casualties, because casualties are not default in this game. Another will help you absorb casualties. And initially, I did not appreciate the relevance of absorbing and inflicting casualties. I thought that it was it was mostly an afterthought, but oh, how wrong I was. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, Walker? I will talk about it, because Kemet is a little bit like Blood Rage, where you can surgically strike an area and sacrifice all your guys at the end and just get the points that you need and pull out. Much like Blood Rage, where you're, you you sacrifice your guys in, you know, you, you uh, can, they can be hit by Ragnarok, or, you know, you mean they just will all die, but you get what you need. Like, your, your armies are superficial. Or you can play where you want to hold territory, where you, you take the blue power, you get the defense, you, you're able to, you know, keep your units on the table, where you don't have to waste the actions getting your troops back out again. Yeah, it really is the case that winning a fight is one thing. But if you're not careful, if you haven't set things up properly, and if your opponent catches you by surprise, they can make your victory pyrrhic. They can make it so that, yeah, you've won the fight, but now you're not able to take control of the territory at all. And maybe they've lost the fight, but maybe they haven't lost anybody in the process. And all they're just going to do is retreat one step away and be waiting on your doorstep. Because one of the things in Kemet that's really striking, and, and the battle system plays into this, is you cannot leave weak forces on the board. It is just asking for trouble because you get a point, a a permanent victory point every time you go in a fight. So if 
you leave a weak army somewhere, it is just begging to get stomped on. It is immediately calling to everybody else's interaction. So if I march in with a big army and I figure, ah, I just need to win this fight, and I stomp all over you, but by the end of the fight, you still have your five guys, and I've only got two guys left, in many ways you've won. In, you've lost in the short term because I was able to dislodge you and I probably got a, a victory point out of the fight, but your board position is still much better than mine, and I've traded significant resources and significant actions in the process of getting that victory, that quote-unquote victory. That's what I mean. It's all about min-maxing your actions, and you used a word there of permanent victory points and not permanent, and I just want to tie that, all of that into how well the designer and or the production helps you play this game. Even though there's a lot of rules, all the symbology is great. There are permanent victory points and temporary victory points, and they're different shapes because you know that the ones where you attack are square, and any other ones that are permanent that you can never lose are square, and ones that are permanent, like holding a four-level pyramid or holding a temple, they are round, so you know which ones you can lose and which ones you can't. All of the symbology on all the power tiles are great. You have your own little player board where all the symbology is all the same throughout your special action cards and everything else and just makes the game that much more playable. That was another thing I underestimated when I first played the game. I underestimated the usefulness of all of those different victory point counters. Because you can get, again, because there are multiple paths to victory, there are all these different victory point counters, and it really is worth the effort to sort them out and give the correct ones at the correct time. Because you need to differentiate the point that you get because you bought this animal versus the point that you have because you held two temples at the right turn versus the point you had for sacrificing your guys a couple turns ago. It really, really helps to know specifically where they came from, not just the distinction between temporary and permanent which of course is the most important distinction but specifically where those points came from and it gives you a good sense of where they can go in the future because Kemet in terms of the game ending condition regardless of which version you use and there's a couple of different ways you can do it it's always a race it's a race to a certain number of points and trying to make sure that you can win the race and, and that nobody can overtake you and for what it's worth we talked a little bit about this when we talked about victory point systems I find this kind of victory point system on a game like this to be very exciting because I get to look down and say, okay, well, I've got six points out of my eight that I need and he's got five, but he's better able to get that. And I, I, it really starts to internalize tension and I really get excited about those last couple turns. The, the same thing happens to me, by the way, in Antica because it has the same, it's the same thing. You have all these permanent points and I look at it and say, okay, where are my next points coming from? Where are their next points coming from? Can I get this done before then? It's one of my favorite ways to end a game like this. That's right, where you know exactly who your opponent is and taking one of their victory points is like doubling up yours and it's that's a great way to do it. Yeah, and with a bare minimum of kingmaking, you can end up in situations whereby the way temporary and permanent points shake out that you can get involved in some some peripheral kingmaking situations, but most of the time, that player who's not in contention for the win has a root to more points or more certain points and if you're clever about that and you know that that's what they quote-unquote should be pursuing if everybody plays as expected you won't have to worry about king making too much which again is very nice so i'm gonna go back to teaching the game a little bit now because it goes into one of my one of the bad points and that is holding back you have a player board and uh it's a neat way they did it it's another pyramid system and they did the different orders you have to make sure you take one from there's three different levels of your player board and you have to make sure you take one action from every section of the board you move you upgrade your pyramid you buy the powers and they're all on different sections and it usually doesn't limit you very much but sometimes it can where i'm going with this is that 
experienced players will know that you have to hold your move actions back to the very end. And I don't know if you, if you can consider that a weak point of the game or not, but that's what, that's why I add in the teaching, make sure that everyone understands that's, that's what they should do and explain why. Cause you, you know what I mean? If, if experienced players hold all their movement back to the very end, everyone's already used theirs then you cannot, you know, you can't move to, to change the board. Well, there are two kinds of moves you might want to make. There's the sniping a weak army and that you very much want to do early. And then there's every other kind of attack, which you want to do very late. All things being equal. There are some exceptions. Sometimes things shake out a little bit differently, but you're right. You either want, in rare circumstances, to be able to seize on that small straggler, that small troop somewhere. Or, yeah, you hold back all your movement to the end. And that's one of the reasons why I find the action selection to be relatively pedestrian. It doesn't... I, I, I want it to be a little cleverer. I like clever action selection mechanisms in games. If there were a way to make it a little bit neater, then I think that... But it, it, get, it gets the job done. Basically, you have five actions to take, and most actions you can't take more than once per round. That's more or less it. There's a, a couple of corner cases where you're a little constrained, but you're never really rewarded for clever play. There's no real sense of... Uh, really being able to plan out your round in a novel way. It's just mostly just take five actions. Well, and, and it does help a little way because you can look around and see what people, other actions the other players have taken. So if you can see that, you know, Joe and Larry have already uh, taken white powers, then, you know, you can sort of hold back on taking yours because there's no way they can take the one you want. So in that kind of, those sort of cases, you know, seeing what other play, players have done and what they're able to do in the next turn, I think that sure. adds to the game a little bit. By the way, I really hate Larry. I don't know why you keep inviting him. He is a jerk. Yeah. Yeah, he's a big jerk. Screw that Larry guy. So that, that actually dovetails into something I want to talk about briefly here and much more later. And that is, as I said, there are a couple things about Komet that I find more and more clever every time I play. The battle system in particular, just getting the nuances about the parameters of how and why and when I want to win a fight. Really, really are, are appreciating elements of the graphic design. You're absolutely right. I continue to appreciate more and more as, as, as I play the game more. But the turn order system in Kemet is annoying me more and more every time I play it. And it is, in many ways, I think the single biggest black mark against the game. Because in rare occasions, you want to be first. But in all other instances, going last is huge. It is massive. And it is far too consequential. And there are a couple of different ways to set turn order. None of them are particularly good. In my experience, it's very much a, a sort of pick your poison kind of thing and choose the least bad version because there's the way it works out of the box, which is whoever's in last place decides everything in the turn order. And that's uh, potentially very unsatisfying because that actually encourages a little bit of those kingmaking situations, right? Because if you're in last place, you're probably not in contention for the win. But if you decide who gets to go later than the other person amongst the people in contention that might have a game determinative effect... That's not very cool. There's the way to do it in the expansion. More on that later. But that is a that that adds a rather cumbersome element to the to the flow between rounds. And you and I are both big on smooth flowing between rounds. We don't like big upkeep from round to round. We like to be able to to, to get the next round going as, as quickly as possible. And so, honestly, given the outsized influence it has on the game, I think it's the biggest weakness that the game has. Agreed. And we're like I said, more on that later. But uh, yeah, because stops the game and unfortunately i 
cannot think of a way to fix it. Yeah, but that's not that's not why we get paid the big bucks. That's right. We get paid the large dollars to complain. I usually come up with something though, but in this case, it's just it's one of those things that you just have to push your way through. So let's talk a little bit about the expansion then, because we've we've kind of mentioned it in passing already. The expansion is called Tacity, and it has a number of different modules in them. And I think it's safe to say the module in it that we both like like the most are the Black Power tiles. In fact, it's the only one I know. I've owned it for a while and have never played with anything but the black power tiles and the black pyramid so i won't even be able to speak of the other parts of the expansion okay so let's start they look really cool okay well let's start by talking about the black power tiles so one of the things that i've noticed about black power tiles is that there are complaints in a game like this as i said with 64 power tiles there are always complaints about one being overpowered next to another It is almost inevitable in games like this. But it does seem to be that the complaints do seem to be clustered around the black power tiles. Some people complain about other ones. There are some red tiles and white tiles that people object to. But there are a couple in the black set that people seem to identify as problematic. Has that been your experience? Uh, I haven't read anything about it, but in my playthrough, yes. Although you just played a game against the the hippo and, and still won. The hippo no, no, no. didn't win. No, so so actually the last game we didn't play with, th- there was no death hippo. We were referring to the battle card introduced in the expansion, ah, yeah, which yeah. has an angry hippo on it. Oh, I see. Uh, but he didn't actually play the hippo. Gotcha. Now well, I, I mean, strictly speaking, we all had hippos. It was just, you know. Yes, I so understand. So we're talking about one, it's called the Devourer. It's one creature in the black tile set. And the, the, the big thing about the Devourer, I don't know that it's overpowered, but it definitely has an outsized influence on the game. The moment it shows up, a lot of the game, and Certainly a lot of the game of the person who bought the Devourer is about the Devourer because the Devourer is not only a badass monster in a number of thematically jumbled ways. So it's very, very deadly, but it's also gives you a strong defensive power that doesn't really fit with the rest of its ability, which is kind of weird because usually it's also somewhat unsatisfying because generally speaking, if somebody's got a badass killing machine, you want to start exploiting other powers to try to nerf it, but it's explicitly immune to a lot of those powers, which is kind of strange. Uh, but at any rate, it just it's it's a treme- it can be a tremendous sense of por- points if anyone lets their guard down, and so just suddenly it's all about the devourer, which eh, in a game with so many different effects, I don't like it when one starts to get outsized, and that that's my only that's my only substantive beef so far with the the black set. There are a couple tiles that look potentially dubious, but hey, a lot of the tiles look dubious. I was gonna say compared to the other ones, I I don't see anything stand out but that one. Yeah, it hasn't gotten to the level where I'd want to nerf or remove anything from the game. Let me put it that way. And we always talk about what strategies you can take to counterdict this Death Hippo, but I'm wondering if if you have to come up with a a direct strategy to counter something and change your gameplay just because of one other tile, that might be a problem as well. I hate removing something from a game with this kind of universe of effects. Unfortunately, though, as I said, Kemet is, you know, basically a Euro game of shopping and sniping. And so I I do have a little bit higher standards for balance than something I'm saying, you know, Cosmic Encounter. So I don't really know what to do with the Devourer. I've seen a number of discussions about the Devourer. And indeed, uh, you do have to play by the correct rules. There are some people who play the Devourer, Devourer by the wrong rules, in which case the Devourer gets yet stronger. Basically, there's a power that the Devourer has that after winning a fight, if it wins under certain conditions, it gets yet more points. Some people play it that some people mistakenly played it because the, the wording is a, is the tiniest bit, not ambiguous, but not as explicit as it could be, whereby the Devourer's power can trigger even if it loses a fight. And in that case, all bets are off. The Devourer is just 
gonna probably gonna run the table. So let's talk about those other units. I'll talk about them briefly. The other units in Tassetti because I have tried them. There's the eponymous road to Tassetti, which is, in my experience, way more trouble than it's worth. Even if you've got a table full of experience, experienced players, it kind of makes the game drag a little bit in a way that it doesn't want to because it's tacked on to already the most consequential action in the game, namely moving. Typically, when you move, you start a fight. And so, you know, the entire table pauses while you two fight, fight a fight, and you tally up strength values, and you play cards, and you do resolution. And then on top of that, everyone has to wait for you to move your priest down a little road and do some effect. It also introduces a whole new universe of tile effects into the game, which kind of sort of overloads it. I mean, Kemet already has a lot of variables to track. I don't think it needed an entire new universe of effects. More tiles is one thing, but an entire new kind of subset of powers... Eh, a little bit overbaked. I didn't really uh, think it was worth it. And then there was the version where you can bid for turn order, which, again, is just very cumbersome. I liked the effect that it had on making the turn order more deterministic and a little bit less arbitrary based on where you're sitting, but I really didn't like the effect that it had on the flow of the game, and it requires everyone to really know what they're doing. So, Are they bidding prayer points, or what are you bidding? It's kind of like a fight, a weird pseudo-fight whereby you play battle cards and whoever wins the fight gets to decide where they are in the, the, the turn order. I wonder if that's an easy way to fix, start bidding prayer points. Maybe. I, I would worry that it's not granular enough. I mean, yeah, typically people don't, don't have, have enough prayer points, so... True. Everyone will be tied at zero, and then you'll just have to go back to the same system anyway. Yeah. Then there are some of the promos. There's the... Uh, most interestingly, there's the C3K, which is the... Cyclades crossover with uh, Kemet. You can use Cyclades monsters in Kemet and Kemet monsters in Cyclades. Uh, I really don't like it. I think the, the Cyclades monsters in Kemet feel really weird. And they, they, I do actually think, are sufficiently wonky that I'm able to identify them as a set and say not in any of my games. What, what is your opinion on them? Uh, more is always better in my book. But you're right, it definitely throws off like set strategies type thing, you know what I mean? Like uh, it goes outside of the box and, and makes other units more powerful for sure. It's also thematically unsatisfying and it, the the components are visually jarring, right? So all, all the all the monsters in, in Kemet are... Washed brown. Washed brown, kind of sandy color, and it all matches the aesthetic very well, whereas the Cyclades monsters are bright white. And so they don't look like they belong. And thematically, they don't belong. You know, they're, they're, they're Greek monsters. I don't need a... Greek monsters in Egypt? No. Yeah, exactly. It just doesn't do much for me. So I'm, I'm, I, I've played with it a couple times, but I'm happy to leave it off. And there's going to be another expansion. Yes. Well, a purple, a purple pyramid with yeah. purple powers. It's true. Purple pyramid with purple powers. I'm and it's very excited. Possibly coming out sometime in October. It's going to be about Seth, who is one of the uh, you know the big nasties of the Egyptian pantheon. It's also going to introduce a six-player option, but not in the traditional way. It's going to be a one v all version where one player plays as Seth, and then the other uh, five players play against them. I've not seen this done especially well, but it's usually interesting at least. Tribune did a similar thing with its expansion, whereby it wasn't so much 1v all, but one player was playing a radically different game from it than everybody else. At least they're not just uncritically adding in a sixth player without any sort of awareness of the consequences. But I am cautiously optimistic about the, the, the next expansion to be released. I'm looking forward to it. You said you were going to talk about player aids. Yes. What yes. were you going to say about player aids? One thing that we did mention when talking about blinging out your game is the necessity of coin sleeves in Kemet. So as I said, there are 64 power tiles. Setting them up is a massive pain. But as somebody pointed out on Board Game Geek, 
So you can do Plano boxes for other stuff, but I don't even think that's necessary. I dump everything in plastic bags. But for the power tiles, I absolutely put them in these coin sleeves, and they're basically these Mylar sleeves that can go into a binder that have 16 pockets in them. So it's perfect. One sleeve per color. Set them all in. That's it. Setup goes from this cumbersome, potentially five to ten minute process of just laying out the power tiles to these sleeves that can best of all be handed around the table. Someone's like, I want to buy a blue tile. You just hand them a sheet. So go and look on whatever supply store you go to for coin sleeves. If you haven't already, if you have Kemet and you hate the setup problems, but you're not going to regret it. You might even have to pay like five bucks for a couple sleeves, but it's definitely worth it. It's possibly, in terms of utility for time, it's probably some of the best money I've ever spent in board gaming. Yeah, or old, old, cool, old school uh, slides, you know, you, photo slides. If you go to a Photoshop, they might have some of the old binder sleeves and they work just as well as well. Absolutely. And then there's the player aid situation, which is the other big thing when playing Kemet because all the information is there, but there's a single copy. And if you're playing with the expansion, basically the information spread out in a not especially helpful way because the expansion added new divine intervention cards, which are one shots. We didn't really talk about those because they're not, I mean, they're fine. They, they're not particularly consequential. And so, you know, if you have a divine intervention card, all the components are language independent. So you're gonna have to look up a lot of the stuff, even if you played a couple times before. And so you don't know which set it is, so you need these two different booklets and find it in the right booklet. The black power tiles are summarized in a different place than the, than the white, red, and blue power tiles. So you're going to have to find a good player aid. And the way that we both have done it actually independently, because we both did this before we had met each other, was just take the publicly available player aid information and just organize it slightly better so that all the power tiles are in the same place and then all the divine intervention cards in the same place. And then, most importantly, make sure there's a copy for everybody. So you don't have to be constantly answering five sets of questions about, well, what does this tile do? What does this other tile do? So... Very rarely do I say that a game needs these things, but if you're going to play Kemet, you absolutely need. I, I would say both of these things. You can get by without the coin sleeves or whatever, but it's just going to be a waste of time. So do yourself a favor. Exactly. And the player aid is also well good as well because a lot of the strategies and these DI cards where you're going to be able to get that extra move in or that way to attack that your opponent didn't know about and you want to be announcing to the table, you know, well, how does this work? And then everyone knows you have it type thing. So, absolutely. Being able to know what your own cards are makes the game so much better. So to sum up, I mean, for me, Kemet is an example of how you can slightly tweak uh, Dudes on a Map game. It has a number of the elements of Dudes on a Map games, but to, to my mind, it's fundamentally a game about shopping and sniping. A lot of people look at it and say, this is a game about infrastructure and territory control. I don't think that's an accurate way to approach the game. It's relatively tight not just in terms of the map design, but it is always over sooner than people think it will be. It's a nice race for points. I find it tense, lots of different ways to play and lots of interesting strategies. I think this is a really, in many ways, the best example of sort of the Euro Ameritrash hybrid school of design. And I've, I've had it ever since it was originally published and I still enjoy getting it to the table. It's a great game, warts and all, but those warts are very prominent and they're starting to bother me more and more and more. And I hope that someday I'm going to find some sort of solution that really makes me happy. Maybe it'll be in this purple expansion. Maybe. Maybe I'll have a new turn order thing and everything will be great. I've got nothing to add to that. Kemet will, Kemet will always be in my uh, collection. The component quality is through the roof. 
every faction has a different set of models. All the monsters come washed and shaded, and they're very interesting and neat, and they all have unique abilities, and the different combinations that you can get through taking a different set of power tiles every game just makes the game fresh every time you play. So that is Kemet by Madagot Games. If you have a chance to try it, go for it. So let's talk about turn order problems. And I think of it primarily in terms of problems because usually, there are some exceptions, but usually when a game gets turn order right, I don't really notice anything about it. But when it gets it wrong, I start to get really, really, really annoyed. And what's what's worst about it is that turn order problems can plague even very low luck, very deterministic games, especially once you get past two players, but sometimes even when you have two players, right? So this is this is the paradigmatic example. In chess, white will win most of the time. And everyone knows this. It's just baked into the feature of chess, one of the most famously no or low luck games in the world. But the most, in some contexts, especially based on even the grandmaster level, sometimes the most deterministic thing that happens in a game of chess is just that first random allocation of who's white and who's black. That's why you always switch off places. And abstract games, typically very low luck, have been grappling with this problem for years. There's the version where somebody makes a first move and then the other player has the option of either accepting their position or playing second. There's the option that some people are favoring now and a number of abstract design games do where one player makes a first move but then for the rest of the game everyone takes two moves in succession. So similar to how it works in drafting. But suffice to say, this is a serious, serious problem and as the game gets more deterministic, sometimes it's the case that the turnover problems get more pointed. I agree. So I've broken it down into some topics of how games do turn order. So there's the typical Euro way, which is there's a random first player chosen, and then some benefit or penalty is given out to the other players. Like, i.e., they'll be given more po- more coins as the you know as it goes around the player. You know, everyone gets seven. Next player will get eight, nine, ten around the table. That often works. I, I'm happy when that does when it works that way, especially since very often in, in Euro games like that, it's one of those games that has very, very smooth rounds. Namely, there's no round structure. People just keep taking turns. And honestly, if the price you have to pay to get that kind of smooth round progression is to be a little bit more laissez-faire about turn order, I'm fine with that. What rankles me, though, is that sometimes even in very good games and good designers who recognize the need of doing that, sometimes it's not consistent. Now, the fam- the, my favorite example of this is the greatest game of all time is Tigers and Euphrates. There is no debate about this, and if you disagree, you're wrong. But it has a bit of a start player problem because whoever... Now, the start player problem is a little different from turn order per se, but whoever gets to start is going to have a significant advantage, and there's lots of data to back this up. Reiner Knizia is aware of this problem because in Through the Desert, if you are the start player in Through the Desert, you get fewer actions in your first turn. Now, many people, therefore, have backported this idea into Tigers and Euphrates, saying that the first player in a two- or three-player game, or the first two players in a four-player game, only get one action on their first turn, not two. And I have yet to see anyone come up with a good reason not to do this. I'm relatively averse to house rules, but that's typically how I play Tigers and Euphrates. And so it's a little bit frustrating when... You know, players rec- when designers recognize this, but they're not consistent about addressing it. Next on the order is a set order for games that have asymmetric powers or have scenario scenario based play. So, like Axe and Allies, all the sides have certain powers and they're ordered in a way that gives certain sides advantages. Same thing with Scythe. Some economics ha- economic powers are better than others, and they're all given a number. Therefore, some 
get to go before others. Right, but that that one is an example of, I think, uh, one where I'm not sure it was robust enough, right? Because if you're sitting at a table and whoever has the lowest number gets the first turn, but if you're sitting at a table and the order of the powers is 1, 7, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, well, I mean... Whoever is first gets to go first, and then whoever's number seven, who th- theoretically is the most powerful setup on the board, gets the second turn just because they happen to be sitting to the left of the player who's won. It's not a robust turn order system at all. It's just they have some help to determine who the start player is, but after that, all bets are off. So basically, in that context where it's one seven two, whoever's got the seven has made out like gangbusters, and whoever's got the two is not looking so good. That's why Rising Sun brings us to the next level, because there's no sense taking your seat in Rising Sun, because it has almost exactly the same system. Right. Every asymmetric power is given a number, and you sit in the total order, unlike Scythe, where it just determines the first player, everything else clockwise. In Rising Sun, you change your seating order, and that fixes up that problem. So let's talk a little bit about seating order, because there's something that I used to do a lot back when I was in Cambridge, and I haven't done it in a while, and I might start trying to do it for some games, if not others. There's a friend of mine I had back in Cambridge who would insist before we sat down that we would randomize where we were sitting for most games like this because he observed, and he's absolutely right, people tend to sit in the same place. And in games where clockwise order matters a whole heck of a lot, you're going to end up with the same kind of degenerate player order issues over and over and over again in this, in, in even different across different games simply because people tend to sit in the same place. And it really is helpful. I mean, it makes it, it's it's hard to break into a group. It's hard to be like, no, 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 you don't get to sit where you want to sit. I'm going to tell you where to sit, or the game is going to tell you where to sit. But really, it has a beneficial effect on a lot of different games. Yeah, well, we decided to do this in our TI4 monthly game. Oh, does TI4 have turn order problems? I didn't know. I didn't notice it was so smooth. I just didn't. But now that you mention it, TI4 does have turn order problems. Why does this microphone have to be so expensive? So I smashed over. Um, anyway, no, what we do is we sit in different orders because it's it. our opponents seem to think that some of us that sit beside each other don't attack each other very much. So if the same people that don't attack, this is the best thing to do when you have couples playing in your group. Never let couples sit beside each other. Because they tend not to attack each other then, whereas if you... Or them, sometimes they attack each other too much. That is also I've seen true. that as well. So if you set them across the table, it just breaks up that thing. Or if you have the same people that are always in alliances all the time together because they always sit beside each other, and then you break that up, you'll see very suddenly that that alliance no longer takes place. Is that why you don't play footsie with me under the table anymore? Yeah, so TI4 in many ways... I mean, I have it written down here precisely because one of the things that I find baffling about TI4 is it recognizes the crucial importance of player order, except when it doesn't. Except when it doesn't, exactly. Yeah, it's just strange because they recognize in the selection of roles that is very consequential for player order and is also very consequential for who wins. Sometimes who has the better, the, the, the higher numbered role, the lower numbered role rather, whoever is the, the one as opposed to the two, is that might even determine who wins the game. And that's great. That's one of the things, that's one of the ways in which TI4 I think is a robust and, and, and decent design. The problem is, is that first of all, the order in which you pick these all important roles is, you know, the same old degeneracy that you're going to find in lots of games that don't take player order seriously. Someone might take the action that says, I get to pick first next time. You want to be sitting to this person's left, not to this person's right. And sometimes you have no control over who's going to take it precisely because this turn, these turn order problems can just 
reverberate and echo from round to round. So it's entirely conceivable, and I've seen it happen, for two, three rounds in a row for someone to be completely boned in selection, both in their uh, role and in determining who gets to pick player order. And that's not a good place to be. And that's not even mentioning the fact that in the political phase of TI4, you always want to be voting last. It's like any other area majority game or any other voting game. You always want to know as much as possible about the game state before you vote and commit your resources. And TI4, which is a game that at the best of times cares very much about player order, just says, eh, well, that could be clockwise the from whomever. Well, that could be the balance, right? Because uh, the speaker always gets to pick the rule first. That's obviously the best. And if you're last, then you... Then then you're kind of boned. But in the political phase, you get to vote last. So that's the benefit you get. Well, a, a viewer actually wrote in and talked about some of his proposed uh, house rules for, for Yeah, TI4. I read that. Yeah, we, we, we already are implementing the one where 10 is the floating victory condition. And it's not as though whoever gets to 10 first, it just engages the end of the game. And then we go up and above 10 or whatever it is that turn. Whoever has the most after that is the winner. Well, no, no. Specifically, what I'd like to talk about is his, his proposed is solution turn. for turn order because what he's uh, implementing is a kind of El Grande-style bidding for turn order, which, for what it's worth, El Grande, I think, is one of the great examples of how to do turn order properly. Although, it's worth noting also, except when it isn't. Because in El Grande, which is an area-majority game, and in area-majority games you always want to play last, you have to bid for turn order, for selection of what it is that you're going to do. And so you have to commit resources in order to act earlier or later in the round. And there's a whole bunch of other background stuff in El Grande, a whole lot of nuance about timing and tempo and resource conservation and so forth. But suffice to say that when the turn order for a round is set, it is purely a function of what everyone's choices have been. Except for the fact that that bidding process has to start somewhere, and that bidding process is just clockwise from whomever placed last in the previous round. So that in, that reintroduces a little bit of that degeneracy. But I would just like to say, there are clever and streamlined ways to take care of it. If in El Grande, the only thing you were doing at the start of the round was choosing turn order, I would feel it was a little cumbersome. But that's not all that you're doing. What you're doing is you're also controlling how many resources you're going to conserve. And it is also the case that you're planning based on what you know the universe of potential actions is going to if you want to hear me, by the way, just again, if you want to hear me talk about El Grande for about two hours, very much in these terms, uh, just go ahead and check out the latest episode of The Long View. And if you don't want to listen to me talk ever again, well then, I suggest you take your device, uh, smash it on the floor, and stomp on it over and over again. Uh, so that's just a little bit of media advice. Um, considering breaking into media criticism, I think I've got a future in it. Agreed. Especially if you're going to do repair. That's great for the repair part. So are we done the, the TI4 bashing segment of the episode? Is that finished? Uh, well, let's just say that we're we're holding it in abeyance until next week. Gotcha. That goes into like the end part of what you were just talking about with the El Grande taking actions in order to turn change turn order. So we have this in first class, which you just played, where you have to take one of your actions. Usually, it's supplemented by getting some sort of bonus, but you have to use one of your actions so you'll be the first player. So first class does it. How dare you put it in the same context as El Grande, though? El Grande, El Grande makes an entire part of the game no, as opposed I, to just I, taking an action to be first. I'm, player. No, 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 I mean, I mean, I used, uh, not not right from bit, El Grande. Bit, bit, <laughs> All right, not right from El Grande, but it means the fact that you're it's implemented as part of the game. Sure, Champions, Champions of Midgard does it. Yep, Castles of Burgundy also does it. 
what do you think of that particular mechanism in order to change turn order? Yeah, the more robust and the more nuanced it can be, the better. So, you know, obviously there's the most simplistic way, which, and I, I don't mean this as a, as a dig, but the most simplistic way you could do it, which is what Champions of Midgard and First Class does, is you take an action to become the star player. But again, that has tremendous follow-on consequences for whether you're sitting to the left or the right of that player who took that hit. Then there's the slightly more robust version. That's the way Eclipse does it, where whoever passes first gets to be start order, uh, start player, but then whoever passes second gets to determine whether start order is clockwise or counterclockwise. Or you can play uh, the way that was introduced in another Eclipse module, which is turn order is strictly in the order you pass. So whoever passes first goes first, whoever passes second goes second, but you have to introduce new components for that. I like it when it's slightly more integrated in the original game, and, and a number of worker placement games do this properly. So Caleb does this properly. Empire's Age of Discovery does this properly. Gaia Project. Gaia Project does this properly, exactly, where there's this queue, and when you take the action, you go to the front of the queue, but everyone else's relative order remains unchanged. Some games can do that, some games can't. And indeed, it's worth, it is worth mentioning, you do pay a cost. You do have to make sure that everyone is paying attention to when it's their bloody turn, because it can get a little bit confusing. Something as simple as deviating from clockwise turn order can throw some people for a loop, but that is definitely my preferred way to do it. Then um, the last one I have on my list is the random turn order. Games like Spheres of Influence, I couldn't come up with any off the top of my head. I'm sure you're going to tell about some other ones where you just randomly, every turn, it's a random player. that All the Birth of a Nation and Birth of America games do this, so 878 Vikings and yeah. Invasion of Canada, all those games do it. Sometimes it works well, sometimes it means the same player gets to take a bunch of turns in a row. I think it's very situational. It depends on how many players are at the table and, and, and lots of other things. It can work okay, but sometimes it leads to degenerate problems. I'd just like to, to give a special shout-out to a sub subgroup of games that really, I think, falls into player order hard in a number of unfortunate ways, and that's trick-taking games. Trick-taking games are often a little bit like Raw, one of those games that might look random because you're dealing from a random deck of cards, but are actually super deterministic. You know, if you look at high-level bridge play, for example, high-level bridge play is very, very, very deterministic. And bridge does not have serious turn order problems because it's a partnership game. But lots of the other Euro trick-taking games, whether it's whether it's your Mew, whether it's Vashtikt, which is probably my favorite, whether it's Bargain Hunter, which is one of my one of my favorites, trick-taking games often run into this problem hard because almost always whoever wins a trick leads the next trick. So again, who's to the right of you, who's to the left of you? And so within a given hand, you might have a lot of nuance about, well, where do I want to place? What do I want to play? What resources do I have? But if it's the case that you're sitting directly to the left of somebody who's constantly winning tricks, a long suit of yours can be stripped accidentally and no one really meant it that way, or it's the case that they might help you junk without even really wanting to. So there can be some degenerate effects based on turn order and trick-taking games. And uh, I'm aware that a couple of trick-taking games try to address this. I just haven't played any of those. So I'm very, I'm very curious in trying them. All right, then there's the mechanisms where everyone chooses an action and it's all revealed at the same time. Yeah. And depending on the action, some games do it very well where uh, the, the strength of the action is given a number of some kind and then whoever has the highest or lowest number gets to go do it first type thing. That kind of mechanism. Yeah, Guards of Atlantis does that very, very well. I'm always in favor of 
activation games like that where you have a unit to activate or, or something like that, especially where there's a high degree of player interaction, where you really need to make trade-offs between high initiative things and low initiative things, and that helps to make helps with character differentiation. And I think Guards of Atlantis does that really well. And I think not only that, I think it really speeds gameplay, because if you don't know what the other players are doing, and you just have to choose what you're doing, whereas opposed if you you know you see, oh, he's doing that, now I have to you know change my strategy. Everyone picks beforehand, and then you're locked in, and it really speeds gameplay up. It speeds up the decisions very often, but sometimes in the resolution, things end up taking a little bit longer than, than you would want them to. We talked about this specifically, actually, in terms of GKR. Uh, heavy hitters, right? Because everyone plays out their weapons and every weapon has an activation number. Uh, GKR, of course, have, having huge turn order problems because you always want to move last. And again, the start player is just, could be to the left of you, could be to the right of you, you've got no control, congratulations. Who knows? But the, uh, the weapon order, on the other hand, does take turn order seriously and it's, it's activated number. It's again one of those games that recognizes the importance of turn order and then flubs it right when it's important. But sometimes the resolution just takes longer than, than you'd like to. It's like, okay, I've got a 12. Anyone higher than 12, I've got a 13. Well, I've got a 12. I've got a 14 as well. It's like, you know, and then go through it. But I agree with you. In terms of gameplay effects, it's, it's often Yeah, it's the same as Robo Rally, right? When you start. I'm not. I, actually, I looked at the new the newest Robo Rally box. I didn't see any numbers on the cards. So I don't know if they've changed that or not. But anyway. They've, they've changed some things about the new Robo Rally. I just don't know the, the details. The old Robo Rally is the, was the same sort of thing. You're like yelling out numbers and you're trying to work your way down. It's kind of. Uh, yeah, it's always more cumbersome than it should be. It, yeah, sometimes. It is, I think, one of the best ways to do turn order. But just in terms of the play experience, just managing through the round it can be a little burdensome that's all i have for overall topics i have particular games to talk about so i have rising sun we've already touched on it but i think it layers it right so every faction has a number of where people are going to sit and the turn order and once it starts up it doesn't stop and i can't think of another game that does that because it does have a round structure on top of that so the round will end and then when the next round begins, it'll start with the player that left off. So it, the you know it keeps going around the table. It never stops, but there are still rounds, and I think it just really works well. As I mentioned when we reviewed it, I like it for the most part, but I think that sometimes specific combinations of powers at the table can lead to weird results. It's not nearly as bad as how Scythe does it, where you really can have strange elements of it. But in in Rising Sun, you know, if you have a number three. That could be really good or really bad, depending on who else is at the table. And to a certain extent, that's part of the intended design, but sometimes I think it's it's a little fluky. Next on the list is Forbidden Stars. I mentioned it only because it has a really neat activation system. You have this hand of, I think it's about four different, five different actions. You have two of each. You're placing them four of them out on the map in the center of each tile, and other players are taking turns doing this as well, so it's creating stacks on all the different map tiles. And then it goes around the table, and you get to flip over whatever tile you want, but sometimes your tile might not be on the top, so you can't take any actions. So I think they did a really neat way to you know do player order in that game. No, you're right. The last in first first out system is pretty good. They did the same thing in Pericles. They did the same thing in Starcraft. It, it leads to some interesting stuff. Yeah. And the last thing we've already talked about TI4, how it it shows you this robust turn order and everything else, and then it grabs it and rubs it in your face. <laughs> So only you get to say bad things about TI4 now. Exactly. I don't think that's very fair. Well, that's, I'm afraid that's how it goes. And our listeners will back me up. You are a bad man and a terrible person. Hey, look, I'll have you know that like a solid 2% of our listeners also hate TI4. <laughs> solid, solid 2%. Well, 
I think that's going to close us out for this week of So Very Wrong About Games. Thank you so very, very much for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at thegamesyoulike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. We read absolutely everything you send us. For example, we got a very, very nice message from Corey Feinsod, who received his copy of Massive Darkness, and has not complained about how we are presumably mispronouncing his name. So I think that that's an indication of the kind of solid gentleman he is. So we thank you again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. So if you'd like to suggest a game or a topic that you want us to cover in the upcoming weeks, because we're really tired of, you know, coming up with these things and and we don't want to do the work and we think you should do it for us. Yeah, creativity is hard. Um, go to the Board Game Guild or our Facebook page and suggest a game and or topic you'd like us to cover and uh, we'll ignore it. So any suggestions will be very much appreciated. Sincerely, we will try to accommodate your desires as best we can. See you next week. Take care. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.